That's a great song to sing when you are, as we are, uh, in the midst of the Gospels. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, all four of the Gospels, the New Testament as a whole for sure, but particularly, particularly the Gospels have as their design to show us the Christ, uh, to give Jesus to us, uh, to tell us who Jesus was and what he is like, and the appropriate, the only safe response to him, which is faith and trust and resting ourselves in him. This morning we pick up uh, the first of three paragraphs that are really, really tightly related. It's, in fact, it's sort of a... Um, a strange place in the Gospels. This doesn't happen very often. Where Mark starts one story, he very specifically interrupts it in the middle for an extended series of verses and then comes back and finishes uh, the original story, almost like a, a, a Gospel Oreo cookie. So you start out with Jairus, And then you go to this afflicted woman, and then you come back to Jairus. Uh, And so we'll start out and go as far as the first uh, bout with Jairus this morning, that opening paragraph, verses 21 to 24. So let's stand together. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged around him. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the great promise that you restore the fortunes of your people to them. Lord, you restore people who were made for a relationship with you and who wandered off in sin, rebelled against you. You restore the fortunes of such people back to yourself. And when we find ourselves among those who have been returned from our dangerous exile into sin and into the world and to 
having been among those completely lost. Oh, may we find ourselves, as the psalmist says, thinking about our salvation like those who have just had the most wonderful dream. May our, our hearts and our souls and our mouths be filled with laughter and thanksgiving. And even as we have been doing together this morning already in song, may we have tongues and hearts that rejoice before you. And Lord, it is our hope that we will be used as instruments of your grace so that more and more people in the world, among the nations, will join in the chorus that says, Great in the Lord, great is the Lord, who has done these great things. Lord, we do pause to pray for the church around the world, many of them in really difficult cultural settings, far more oppressive than our own, far more aggressive than our own, in a culture that has no history, really, of far and wide Christian influence, may yet you enable those people to be an instrument of your grace in such that increasing numbers among them would join in this chorus saying, Great is the Lord who has done these things. The Lord is great who works among us. And we have become those who rejoice. Rejoice in the forgiveness of our sins. Rejoice in the privilege of knowing you. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be as those who live out our lives as a sort of streams of water in an otherwise desert place, dry place, lifeless place. Lord, we are realistic about the fact that as we share the gospel, most people do not respond positively. The psalmist says, those who were sowing with tears, in the end, hope to see and hear a great shout at the harvest. But as they walk about weeping, casting their seed, it often awaits the last day before they find themselves coming again with rejoicing, experiencing the great harvest at the end of the age when you gather your elect from the four corners of the globe. Your elect who are who they are because they have come to understand that your son is who he is and have devoted themselves to him. May we see the wonder of knowing Jesus in a fresh way this morning. And we ask that you would come and meet us to this end in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated.
I easily feel like I quote things too often. So it's really, it's a great help to me to uh, have us get into the pattern of reading off our purpose statement every, every week, right? We are becoming disciples. We are living as a family of disciples. We are making disciples in our community. Uh, we are sending disciples out into the world uh, because actually there are many truths that you, you know, you need to say and repeat every single day, uh, really, uh, to yourself, uh, which is why when the Lord taught us to pray, he gave us a fairly simple pattern um, that uh, can easily uh, seem, even as to its categories, uh, quite repetitive, and yet there it is. He, he gave it uh, to us. And I've remarked a number of times uh, that the uh, commentator Rodney Decker, in his introduction to Mark's gospel, uh, summarizes for us what Mark's gospel is about this way. Mark's purpose is related to discipleship. He works it out paragraph by paragraph, by challenging his readers to answer two intertwined questions. Number one, who is Jesus? And number two, what does he expect from those who follow him? Now, he's right. Most of the time, those questions are really intertwined, and they're, they're also intertwined here. But In these next three paragraphs, very much what stands out is that Mark understands himself quite self-consciously to be answering that first question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And as I say, that begins, runs from that first paragraph, verses 21 down to 24, and then it breaks apart into a separate related story, uh, and then comes back to the original thread of Jairus and his daughter. And all three times, all three times in a row, it answers this question, who is Jesus? How important is Jesus? How big a deal is Jesus? And that's a really important question for people to ask and answer for themselves repeatedly if you live in a culture like ours where, frankly, Jesus is no big deal. In fact, if anything... Um, Jesus is somewhat offensive if you do happen to think about him or if you are somehow forced to think about him. So he's either no big deal or he's positively offensive. And is that an accurate picture of who Jesus is? And our culture assumes that it is. I don't know how many times I've quoted that line from 
Elton John's album from 1975, the title track, Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. All this talk of Jesus coming back to see us couldn't fool us. All this talk, all this talk of how important Jesus is couldn't fool us. In other words, we figured out Jesus is actually no big deal. Jesus is actually this right-wing sort of political, religious figure. Jesus doesn't come into much when it comes to the average life of somebody living in a place like the United States of America. All this talk of Jesus being important, returning again to judge the living and the dead. Couldn't fool us. Couldn't fool us. Let's summarize the thesis from this little paragraph where Mark lifts up Jesus before us this way. We would be wise to recognize Jesus as a life-giving Savior. We would be wise to recognize Jesus as a life-giving Savior. And as we'll see, actually a little bit more than that even, but that's the essence of where this goes. Um, And we'll come at that by just allowing the text to answer three questions that bring out who Jesus is. Question number one, should Jesus allow people to bow before him? Should Jesus allow people to bow before him? Verse 21 and 22. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell before his feet. So we're already in this sequence of stories that are built around the Sea of Galilee. So we started with crowds pressing Jesus on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And then he got in a boat and he crossed over to the relatively Gentile and low population east shore of the Sea of Galilee, where he runs into this demon-possessed guy, the only one mentioned in Mark and Luke, but Matthew says there were two of them. But he runs into these demon-possessed guys, and he heals at least one of them miraculously. And, and now he has gotten back in the boat, and he's, and he's traveled back over to the more Jewish-dominated, far more densely populated west side of the sea. And that's where we find this great crowd, this large crowd, having regathered about him. They've heard he's back. He's got a reputation for healing. So here they are. And because of that reputation for healing, there's one guy who particularly stands out, walks forward in the crowd, 
because he's in a desperate situation. He has a little girl who is dying. And so he comes through the crowd and he falls at the feet of Jesus. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet. He bows down to Jesus. Now, the ruler of the synagogue, this is probably a relatively biblically informed guy. Right? Um, You know, the thing about Jews is in, in their heritage... You're really careful what you bow down before. Right? That's one of the central stories in the book of Daniel. Is the three Hebrew exiles. Who when Nebuchadnezzar sets up his great statue. And makes it a cultural thing. That when a horn sounds. Everybody bows down before the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and these three young Hebrew guys, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they they won't bow. They don't fall down before images. Um, And they are are right not to do so uh, because Jews only worship God. Like that, so they don't. They're not falling down before people. They're not falling down before images. Uh, but this guy comes and he falls down before Jesus, and Jesus doesn't correct him. He doesn't say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Get up, get up! What are you doing? What are you doing? Falling down? No, 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 no." Later in the book of Acts, when uh, uh, Paul uh, gets mistaken for uh, uh, a god and they get ready to offer some sacrifices to him, he tears his clothes and runs out. No, 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 no. Don't. What are you guys doing? You guys are crazy. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. He lets this guy fall down in front of him and worship, raising the obvious question. And Mark wants to raise this question. So who does this Jesus think he is accepting worship like this? Who does he think he is? Or more specifically, as studying Mark's gospel, As Mark shares this story, who does Mark think he is? Who does Mark think he is? This question occurred in a really central way to a guy that had been Christian for about 10 years. The early 1940s, Second World War has started. And, uh, and things are pretty tough in Great Britain. And of all things, in that time, 
the British Broadcasting Company uh, approaches a scholar named C.S. Lewis and asks him to come on and give some Christian-related talks on the radio, series of them. And, um, and, and Lewis does it. He does it. He comes. He gives the talks. And, um, and they eventually are, are published. Initially, uh, they're published in a little two-volume thing. Um, in Great Britain, it was just called uh, Broadcast Talks. Uh, but, but, but here in the United States, it was come out as two volumes. It came out as The Case for Christianity was volume one, and Beyond Personality was volume two. Uh, and then those two volumes eventually were put together and came out as something that I hope many of you have read, uh, Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity was broadcast talks from uh, the BBC. And just as an aside, if you've, if you've never read Mere Christianity in your life, um, and, and you'd be able to you have a reading level that would enable you to read the, you know, the Argus Leader newspaper, um, then you really should buy yourself a copy of that book and read it. And read it. Uh, it's 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 not flawless or anything, but it is it is one of the most influential Christian books of the 20th century. The series of broadcast talks. And early on, in those talks, um, Lewis said, and then later wrote. This about our question. So who is this Jesus? And when Lewis is reading the New Testament, he notices things like in our story. Okay, people come and bow before him, and he lets them do it. And here's what Lewis wrote. Then comes the real shock. Among these Jews... There suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking, and you might add an acting, as if he is God. He claims to forgive sins. He says that he has always existed. He says he is coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now let us get this clear. Among pantheists, like the Indians... Anyone might say that he is a part of God or one with God, and there'd be nothing very odd about it. But this man, since he was a Jew, couldn't mean that kind of God. God in their language meant the being outside the world who has made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you've grasped that, you will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing 
that has ever been uttered by human lips. He goes on. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing you mustn't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he'd be a a devil of hell. You must Make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool and you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or, and here's right from our text, or you can fall down at his feet. That's what this guy does. That's what this guy does. He runs up and he falls down at Jesus' feet. And Jesus lets him. He lets him. And Lewis is very helpful in saying, look, when you read the Gospels, you should always come away with knowing this. They're answering the question, who do you take Jesus to be? You must make your choice. You must make your choice. And I ask you this morning, how have you chosen to think about Jesus? He does say really, really shocking things. Because we're in the Gospel of Mark. I read through the uh, Gospel of Mark once a month. Just go back through it and through it again and through it again and through it again through it again. And this past week, I'm meaning to uh, get anything for the sermon out of uh, the reading, but I, I was near the end of Mark's gospel again where Jesus is at his trial. And this is the kind of thing that C.S. Lewis again has in his mind. Um, we pick it up in Mark 14, verses 61 and 62. Again, the high priest asks him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Quoting Daniel 7.13 and a little piece of Psalm 110 both understood by the Jewish community in the first century to be messianic psalms. So he says, yes, I am this mighty divine-like figure that you read about in Daniel 7.13. He's at his trial. They're about to kill him. He says, this is who I am, he says. This is who I am. This is Mark answering back to Bernie Taupin. And all this talk of Jesus coming back to see us couldn't fool us. And Mark says to Bernie, it's not Jesus who fooled you. 
Somebody else has fooled you. Fooled you into thinking that Jesus is nothing. Fooled you into thinking that Jesus can safely be ignored. Encouraged you to just flow along with the unbelieving society that you live in. Beware. Be careful. Secondly, should Jesus be appealed to for, the, for salvation and life? Should Jesus be appealed to for salvation and life? Seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him, saying, My little daughter, my little girl, is at the point of death. Come and lay hands on her so that she will be made well. Later in the account, when it comes back in the third section, uh, we'll find out from Mark that this little girl is 12 years old. In Luke's parallel, he puts it right up front here, that Jairus told Jesus, my daughter is 12 years old, and she's dying. That's a tragedy. That's weighty. My 12-year-old daughter is dying. And so he asked Jesus to do two things. Actually, he asked him to do one thing for the sake of a, a result that will flow from it. So he says, come and lay hands on her. Come and lay hands on her. And then secondly, so that she may be made well and live. This is all about her physical healing. It's all about her physical healing. She's got a 12-year-old, and he desperately wants her to become 13, and then 20, and then 30, and then 40. That's what he wants. He does not want her to die at 12. So come and lay hands on her. When he says that she may live, it means that she might become 13, and then 14, and 15, and so on. Now, as we'll see, by the time we get to the next phase of this story, she's dead. She's dead, which sets up the parallel that, uh, that Eric read this morning in 1 Kings 17. It's almost a perfect parallel, only the genders of the main players are reversed. That's about the only difference. In, uh, in Mark's version, it's the father who is pleading for his daughter. In the First Kings version, it's the mother who's pleading for her son. Everything else, everything else is pretty much parallel between the two stories. Uh, and Elijah is the instrument that's being pleaded with to heal. So let me just read the king's account again. And after this, the son of the woman... This is this 
woman that started taking care of Elijah. She built a special room for her in her house so that when he traveled by, he always stayed with her. She was this huge blessing to Elijah. And after this, the son of this woman had been so kind to Elijah. The mistress of the house became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him, which is a euphemism. He died. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O son of God, or O man of God, that you come to me and bring my sin to remembrance so as to cause the death of my son? And so he said to her, Give me place where he, take me to the place where he lodged. And he laid him on his bed. And he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, you have brought calamity upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son. And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life Come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again. And he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God. And that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. So here's the question. What's this? Why, why a story like that in the Old Testament? Why a story like it's parallel here in Mark 4 in uh, the New Testament? Uh, is the story to teach you how to get divine healing when you find yourself in trouble. Is that the center of the story? Or is something else at the center of the story? Now, there's a, certainly a whole Christian tradition that says, no, no, that first thing, that's definitely what stories like this are about. They're to stir up faith so that we'll go to the Lord uh, when we face great trouble and we know that he can do anything And then if we exercise faith, then we will have the experience of Jairus. And we will have the experience of this uh, woman in 1 Kings 17. I pray regularly uh, uh, with a group, uh, and one of the guys in that group, he is strongly, strongly in that understanding and and brings it up pretty much every week. It's a weekly prayer meeting. He brings it up every week. And he's so, he's so serious about it that a few months ago, one of the other members in that group had uh, uh, come down with the flu on, on Monday, and, uh, and the group meets on a Friday, and, uh, and her symptoms were not great by the Friday. I mean, she was still uh, 
she was still pretty sick. And, uh, and, and this brother delivered her a little, little message about, <laughs> man, I don't know why you've... There's, there's no need, there's absolutely no need for you to still be having symptoms like this on Friday. Monday night, you should have just trusted the Lord for healing. What's the matter with you? You know, he didn't say it quite like that, but indirectly, that's what he was saying. There's absolutely no need for prolonged suffering ever like this. You just go to the Lord, you claim his power in faith, and there you go. Symptoms gone. You could be sitting here symptom-free if you would just listen to me. Now, is that what Mark is trying to get at here, do you think? I'll be honest with you, I have my doubts. Now, if you challenge a person like that, which isn't really ever all that wise to do, and say, well, you know, maybe what you should do is just start, I mean, you could get, you could definitely get parents to pay your way if you would if you would just start going around and emptying you know and emptying out children's cancer wards they'd fund it people would fund you 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 show up and all the kids at Ronald McDonald house you know go home uh, late that same afternoon well uh, well you know well they, they, they do have to have faith But you know, in the story, especially in the parallel story there in in Kings, this woman doesn't strike you as somebody who's just filled with faith in Elijah and what God might do through him, right? Remember what she says to him? (laughs) What have you against me, O man of God, that you have come to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son? She doesn't sound like she's full of faith in Elijah. No, he's, he's making this plea. And the point is this. What, what can God do? Well, God can do anything. God can do anything. Uh, now, for her, in the end, what, she, what does she know at the end? Elijah speaks for God. God is real. God speaks. He speaks through people like Elijah. What you're supposed to know at the end of this sequence is Jesus really seems to have divine power. He is God the Son. Now, none of the commentators say this, but I do think it's a, I do think there's something to it, right? The, the, the language here in Mark that she just gets well. It's just well. That's a perfectly good translation in one sense. But what it hides from you is that he actually uses the word for, that's elsewhere used in the gospel for eschatological salvation. You're being saved. And the word for life is in equally broad uses, right? It, it's, it's eternal life. It's narrowly, clearly what's in focus here is healing and life that continues on. But, you know, context is king, and the, new t- and the Gospel of Mark is a very eschatological book, 
And the New Testament is an eschatological book, and the Bible as a whole is an eschatological book. And so the, I, I think there's at least a hint to the point. Salvation and life. Salvation and life are all linked tightly, closely, unbreakably to Jesus. Thirdly and finally, very briefly, should Jesus be followed by a wide variety of people? Verse 24 tells us that he certainly was. Um, And he went with him, that is, Jairus went with him, and a great crowd followed and thronged around him. Wide variety of people uh, following Jesus, pressing on, on, on Jesus. Um, over in John's Gospel, we're told of another incidence where Jesus has performed a great sign, namely the feeding of 5,000 people. And understandably, in a short period of time after that, there's all kinds of people thronging around him. But not just people generally people who have now sort of started to consider themselves to be disciples of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus. And in in John's Gospel, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, those of you who were in Jim's uh, uh, Jim Power Sunday School class will remember that a question was asked and uh, and Jim went into a, a sidelight about how the tensions within John's Gospel about the perseverance of the saints and eternal security and people falling away. Well, those tensions are really there. And on the falling away side, you meet it right here. Um, in John 6, there's really powerful election-like language that's used throughout. But here, late in the chapter, you have this surprising falling away sort of language where, where he says this. After this... Many of his disciples, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So that, Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We just sang that a few minutes ago. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See the implication of what Peter says about Jesus? He's it. He's it. whole bunch of people saying, anachronistically, you know, I think Bernie Taupin might be right. All this talk of Jesus. I think we're done. I think we're done with Jesus. He said enough strange things. I'm not going to try to figure out what he's saying anymore. I'm done. No more, no more of this Jesus stuff. I'm just going home. I'm not doing this anymore. 
That's what they do in mass. That's what he's telling us in John 6. Many disciples thought of themselves as disciples. They looked like disciples to anybody else who was watching. John, without any other explanation, just calls them disciples. Many disciples. Many disciples. Uh, they, They turned around and walked away. And Jesus takes it as a teaching moment and and turns to the twelve, the inner circle of disciples, and asks, you going to go away too? And Peter answers, no. Where would we go? Where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Is that true? Is that still true? 20th century, 21st century America, is it true that only Jesus has the words of eternal life? Is that true? I believe it is. That same Peter who says that, in one of his early sermons in the book of Acts, he makes this really magisterial statement about the centrality of Jesus. Acts 4, 11 and 12 This Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Literally, what it says is, by which it is is necessary that we be saved. Little three-letter word day that Luke is extremely fond of, more than anybody else in the New Testament. Uh, It's used more in his gospel than in the other three gospels, and it's used in Acts more than it's used in in Luke, the gospel. Uh, It is necessary. It's a divine necessity. God's plan is such that there is no other path to a right connection to him but Jesus. No other name given among men by which God has made it necessary for salvation to be received. And a great crowd followed and thronged about about him. You know, we used to play a game when we were kids. You'd sit in the living room. Can't believe I played this game because I, when, you know, when, when I was six and my brother was near ten, I didn't trust him for anything. But I trusted him to play this game. So what you do is you pick something in the room, right? And you'd say, okay, I focused on that, and now you try to guess what it is. And then, and then they would start to guess either verbally or, or you could move toward it, right? And, uh, and then as they've got closer, then you're getting warmer. You're getting warmer. If you're moving further away, you're getting colder. You're getting warmer. And we play that over and over again. You're getting warmer. You're getting colder. You're getting warmer. You're getting colder. Um, So where is salvation? 
This great crowd following Jesus. In that game, we'd say, oh, you guys are getting warmer. You're getting warmer. Some of you are red hot. You're right there. It's him. It's him. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. C.S. Lewis closed off, and we'll close it off with him. That same little section. He says this. We are faced then with a frightening alternative. This man we're talking about either was and is just what he said or a lunatic or something worse. Now here's Lewis's own testimony ten years into his faith. Now it seems to me obvious that he wasn't either a lunatic or a fiend. And consequently, However strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. God has landed on this enemy-occupied world in human form. That's what Mark is arguing. That's what Mark is arguing. And that's what C.S. Lewis received in faith. I hope you have. I hope you have. But he's right. We all have to make our choice. And once made, how joyfully, how confidently, how thrilled we should be to find ourselves the followers of the, followers of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for a gospel like Mark tells us who Jesus is. No other name given among men by which it is divinely necessary that we might be saved. Oh, Lord. Those who have found you as Lord and Savior, may you fill us with rejoicing. And those who still wonder whether the Bernie Toppins of the world are right, all this talk of Jesus couldn't fool us. Couldn't fool us. Oh, Lord, may you grant them eyes to see and ears to hear to turn and repent from that hopeless way and come and fall down like Jairus before the feet of Jesus and plead for salvation and life for themselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.